Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello, and welcome to episode 31 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Main Man, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. He didn't want David to worry about anything like rent. He had to be surrounded by creative people because Tony believed that he was a star and that that's what was necessary to keep him focused. He didn't want him having a job and having to worry about this and that and, and working with music on the fly. So he bought into all this. We, I mean, we were all part of this. And I'm sure it was why it worked. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Amanda Lear, Mott the Hoople, Mick Ralphs, Dana Gillespie, Iggy Pop, Cindy Bullens, David Bowie and Lou Reed. Oh yeah, I want him to take drugs. Because it's better than Monopoly. In our last episode, Tony DeFries paid tribute to Lee Black Childers, who was one of the first people to join the Main Man USA team in 1972, and enjoyed some outrageous adventures on the road with many of the Main Man acts. Today, DeFries recalls another key member of the entourage who also joined Main Man from Warhol's Pork. It's Jamie Andrews, who likely was brought on board tasked with looking after Main Man's acts on the road and ensuring that everything ran smoothly. Well, as smoothly as possible in main man's terms anyway. Let's talk about I Need a Lover. This is a phrase that Jamie used when he was on the road with John Mellencamp that Jamie ultimately meant very deeply because almost all the people we're talking about here, all these characters, everyone in this story ultimately has the same problem. They need a lover, a relationship, a some form of reciprocal affection and respect and attention and love that won't drive them crazy. And that's what Jamie was enunciating and saying, I need a lover who won't drive me crazy. Because everybody wants that ideal relationship very few people achieve it where you can be with somebody who you can love and sometimes not love you can fall out with and fall in with be with travel with do things with work with and often separate from over time periods but maintain a relationship with that is beneficial on both sides that satisfies something on both sides that's hard to do and all the characters that we're talking about here and all the characters we will talk about as we move along and there are hundreds of them whether it's Paul Morrissey and Andy Warhol whether it's Sarinda and ultimately Steve Tyler whether it's David and Angela or whether it's David and Freddie whether it's Freddie and his 
little girlfriend. All these people had the same issue, how to maneuver through life with some kind of reciprocal affection and attention from another human being. That is what this is all about. Now, in Jamie's case, and Jamie is someone who was with us, with Main Man, in one form or another, for the longest time. He started working with us in 71. He went on the road with different acts. And he was still working with us in the 1980s. And right up until... 1985 when he died he was still working with us he was still a friend part of the family taking care of all manner of stuff coming on trips with us he was on all of the artists that we worked with through that Bowie period and post Bowie period and he was actively engaged in creating careers, recordings, going on the road with people and doing all of that. That also led him, that road trip, or many road trips actually, led him to do something that he later described as a magnificent obsession and is featured in a a book called The Well-Built Elephant, and is literally a group of photographs that he took all over America of peculiar and extraordinary, extravagant, often fascinating structures built by Americans for the sheer joy of building them, not because there was any real reason to build a gigantic dinosaur, indeed a pair of them, or a massive weathered skull of a buffalo or an enormous shoe or many of these other crazy buildings, whales and railway cars and a hat and boots for a giant and many, many more in this marvellous book which became an art exhibit, um, an art show and which is still considered one of the best examples of this kind of sculpture. So Jamie, when he was much younger, before I met him, was always interested in architecture and structures and buildings. And he went through school and university and ended up with a degree in architecture But when he went to work in it, he discovered that engineering was the principal concern of architects and builders. And what he wanted was not to be an engineer, but to rather be a visualizer, a sculptor. The reason he started taking photographs was just that, to try and create imaginary things And so he wanted to create imaginary buildings. But if you're at the first rungs of the ladder of being an architect, the idea that you can go and create an imaginary building, a building like the Louvre in Paris, 
or a structure like the Statue of Liberty is completely off the board. Nobody's going to let you do that as an early employee in the architecture business. You're going to have to build buildings. This was uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's complaint. He didn't want to build buildings. He wanted to build skyscrapers and multi-level houses and strange and peculiar, extraordinary, wonderful stuff. Architecture only allows a few people to do that. Like everything else, most architects end up building horrible, boring buildings most of their life, and it's not fun. So Jamie decided he would have to try and do something else, try and find somewhere else. So he headed for New York. And in New York City, he found the Theatre of the Ridiculous. He found John Vaccaro. He found Tony Ingrassia. He found Zanetta. And this was all before I met him. He found Andy. He found the factory. And he found a girl called Edie Sedgwick. But unfortunately, Edie died young. She was a very interesting girl. If you look at Chelsea Girls, which is one of the movies that Paul Morrissey and Andy made with her, or Chow Baby, which is a movie about her, but she died of a drug overdose in 1971. And that was something that really impacted Jamie, because even though she was in possible relationships with other people at the time, he had very strong feelings for her. And it's also a turning point for Jamie in that he decided after that that he wouldn't lose his heart to a girl. Another part of his um, conflict, if you like. But in the meantime, he had considered, before he got to New York, believe it or not, in between architecture and photography, he'd actually thought about going into a seminary, training as a priest. And again, he didn't find, when he looked at that more closely, that there was going to be any real potential happiness in that. So like I say, he's in New York, he's at the factory, he's working with the Theatre of the Ridiculous, and of course he ends up stage managing, which he was very good at, but also performing. And so when I first met Jamie, he was performing under the stage name of Rocky Rhodes, that was his stage name, as one of the characters, probably the... Um, well, one of the characters in Pork, I think he was playing a few different roles, actually. But he was part of that group. Zanetta, Sherry, Lee, Wayne, Jamie, who I met in that August 71, I guess, when Pork were in London, when David and Angela and Dana and Melanie and I all went to see them, and then we met them backstage... But I didn't meet Jamie again until I'd already started Main Man in New York and hired Z, Lee, Cherry, and of course we needed someone to go on the road with Act X. For example, if David was on the road and Zanetta was on the road with him, 
then we'd have possibly Mott the Hoople or Lou Reed or Iggy on the road and they needed somebody to be with them. So ultimately we needed duplicates, duplicates of Zanetta, duplicates of Jamie, duplicates of Lee. So we ended up with, obviously I was still there to go out, but I couldn't actually run the business from the road. You couldn't do that in those days. You, you had to be somewhere where you had a, a central functional office space, even if it was in an apartment, which initially it was. So we had this 58th Street apartment. We ran everything out of it and people worked in it. And it was a crazy place, lots of fun. Occasional screaming matches between the queens. <laughs> but a lot of things got done and a lot of work was accomplished. Bands were in and out, musicians and engineers and sound recording folk and whoever. So it was a busy place. But ultimately, it worked out. We had enough people to then monitor rehearsals, monitor the road, manage performances. Lee became very much an advanced man, so he would go to a city where we'd already arranged for a performance, where we had a venue and a promoter, and Lee would go and check out that the venue met the requirements, which often meant looking through a long rider of contract requirements and calling back to the office or sending telexes or, and also finding out if there was any level of enthusiasm at the local clubs and other places if there were fans who would show up. And a lot of this, of course, meant checking out gay clubs, visiting gay clubs, locating gay clubs, and finding out what the level of awareness was for David at that point in time. And this became something we did regularly as we built up different cities that we knew had Bowie fans and that we also knew or found out. And at this point in time, this was very much an underground affair. You couldn't go into a town and say, where's your gay bar? You couldn't just walk into a bar and say, when's your gay night? You couldn't actually mention the idea that there was anything going on. But you could find out by trying to locate places that had any sort of uh, apparent, let's say, if there was local theatre, you might find some people there. You would find some bars and restaurants were slightly more relaxed than others. You find hotels, probably. Some of the less expensive hotels might have people hanging out in them who were not regular straight folk. And then, of course, you could possibly find at the gas station somebody who was pretending to be straight but was actually gay because they couldn't be out. But very often, gay people could recognize other gay people because there was some element of gay 
you know, there's a sort of gay radar or gender radar, if you like, that let people recognize fellow alternate or opposite or possible gender. So it's a very much like dating for the heterosexual community. You go to bars and clubs and you decide, okay, here, here's somebody I could possibly date or possibly just take home or possibly ask out on a date. Well, the same thing can happen for people who are transgender or mixed gender or alternative gender, open to, and this is what we gradually built up over a few years, a red book, if you like, of clubs in different towns all over America. And then we'd send people to visit them or encourage fan clubs in that town to be lookalikes, lookalike Ziggy's, lookalike Angela's. And people would get very excited about the possibility that actually David was in their club when in fact he wasn't, but his lookalike was. And sometimes our own people went and did that lookalike thing just to get it started, to actually make it a possibility. Now we sent Cherry out when she started doing scoops from Cherry Vanilla over the radio and she got calls from different places, different radio stations primarily. So she would go off, at one point we sent her to Los Angeles, and she checked into the Hilton on Sunset Strip. And they had this habit of putting up on their marquee something about who was there, like if it was a movie star or someone famous. So they actually put up on the marquee that welcome Cherry Vanilla and lots of people then showed up to try and find her. <laughs> so she had to flee the hotel because she was actually now being pursued by fans and get them to take her name off the billboard. But it was quite a good indication that we'd got some level of recognition in a place like Hollywood. So more of Jamie, as I say, he, in working with people like Ingracia, he also made friends with Debbie Harry before Blondie, when she was, even before the stilettos, I think, but certainly when she had the stilettos as a band or when she'd formed the stilettos as a band, he was taking pictures of her. And Lee was also taking pictures of her. And this is, again, sort of shared territory Ingracia was acting as an unpaid dance coach, drama coach, um, basically coaching Debbie and her friend because they lived in his building and he heard them and saw them rehearsing and he decided, okay, you guys are not doing anything right. You should be doing this. And this was very much Ingracia's way. He would immediately try and take over any and he was so large and so loud and very talented that he could actually persuade people, look, I know what I'm doing, even if he didn't. And if you did this, it would look better. And if you did that, and your, your moves are wrong and your lighting's wrong and lots of stuff about what you're doing is wrong. And he would get people into routines. And very often these routines, and this was definitely the case for Debbie and the stilettos, in becoming blondie, they got a lot of input from Ingracia that was 
very useful in making their act tighter and better. So along the way, Jamie was taking pictures initially of Debbie, then of the stilettos, and then eventually of Blondie. On the main man's side, and he carried on doing this, he carried on with his photography in the main man years. And so you see lots of pictures of Jamie with David or Jamie of David or Jamie on the road or Jamie with Mellencamp and so on. So when we started doing the Bowie US tours, US tour number one, for example, you'd have an alternate Z or Jamie on the road on the bus. It's actually on one of those bus trips that Jamie was on the bus and they were traveling through somewhere like Kentucky to get to their next gig. And he passed this astonishing building that was a sculpture and it was late at night, but there was enough light for him to see it. And he decided he wanted to take a picture of it. So he came back after they'd done whatever dates that were at the end of that bus ride. But the building had been demolished just in a matter of a few weeks. But that decided Jamie, OK, if I see another one of those buildings, I'm going to take a picture. And he started taking pictures whilst he was on these tours. And this is what led him to make this um, something of a life's work, certainly a work over some years. And he got background on all these buildings over time. And eventually, as I say, he published this very nice book and had this very nice exhibition. And some of those pictures I still have. I have one of the books that he gave to Fleur when she was little with a very nice uh, dedication. And the book itself is probably out of print, but might still be something you could find. After Bowie, Z had departed. Part of that was because he was conflicted over his loyalties to David and his loyalties to me, and he wasn't comfortable. So he didn't go to work with David, although David asked him to, and he didn't feel that he could carry on working with me comfortably. So he decamped. And Jamie, in a sense, took his place. And then Jamie worked with me on Mellencamp, on Cindy Bullens, on Sandy Dillon, briefly on Donna Destry, who was Jimmy Destry's sister and, and featured in some of the later Blondie albums and made a recording for us and also featured in some of Ingracia's post-fame plays. But that's another story. The well-built elephant became Jamie's personal crusade and campaign, and which we supported, albeit we didn't participate in it, but we helped him make it become a reality. And I'm very glad that we did. And Jamie worked for you for many years, right? And was still with you when he died? He was still working for me when he died, yes. I was in London in 85 when I heard that he had gone into hospital and he died quite quickly thereafter. But we did know 
that he had AIDS. I mean, he was an early AIDS victim, so we knew for one or two years that he had AIDS. And we still kept on working with him. We just all, well, you know, we took care around him, obviously. But it was quite sudden that he died. He didn't, uh, it wasn't very long drawn out. It was, when he did die, it was quite sudden, it was quite quick. It's hard to realise these days how little was known about HIV AIDS in 1985. The medical authorities were still struggling to find any form of successful treatment and there was a lot of panic and disinformation at the time, which must have been quite unsettling. Yeah, it was. It, it was very little was known about it. The American uh, administration were particularly opposed to recognising it as an epidemic and a disease and were constantly not supplying enough information, really. So it became very much a social issue. For us, it wasn't. We um, also lost Danny Dragon, who was a younger and more recent member of the main man staff. He also died of AIDS not that long after Jamie. It was something that we were... I mean, uh, you know, this is, this is a problem with AIDS particularly was a lot of it was blamed on homosexual behaviour, which may or may not have been accurate, but clearly it became obvious later on that AIDS was transmitted quite easily from one person to another without any relation to their sexual preferences or any other specific cause and that became apparent very much so in countries like Africa where there was no stigma of it being a homosexual disease in those countries because it clearly wasn't but the stigma in America and even possibly in England was that somehow it was a disease confined to the gay community and that was simply not true. It clearly was far beyond that. But that did prevent many of the people who caught it from getting adequate treatment, from getting proper treatment. It was, in many ways, very well portrayed by Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, the movie, and, of course, by Springsteen in this marvellous um song that he wrote for the movie. So there was a lot of awareness, especially amongst the theatrical community, the artistic community, that this wasn't a gay condition or a gay disease, but was a real epidemic. And of course, the medical community understood that. They were totally devoted to trying to cure it. But it has even now, taken much longer to find cures for AIDS. You mentioned in your Mellencamp episodes that while he was on the road with John, it was actually Jamie complaining about his love life that inspired John's hit, I Need a Lover Who Won't Drive Me Crazy. So I'm assuming he eventually found one. He did. <laughs> he was, you know, he did find a great deal of contentment. And he and I were very close friends, um, as well as working together. But no, he did find more than one lover who didn't drive him crazy. But there was always the one. And it's probably true for a lot of people that you may have many different uh, partners, many different 
lovers, many different relationships, there'll always be some that are absolutely wonderful. And then there are others that have their wonderful side and drive you crazy. And those are the ones that really drive you crazy. The ones where somebody you can be with and let's say the sex is fabulous, but the as soon as you get out of bed, everything falls apart or everything's fabulous except the sex. There's all these different possibilities where if you're lucky enough at one point in time to get the whole package in one package, then you should hold on tight to that, but not too tight. Don't squeeze it so much that you actually destroy it. Those can be very fragile. That's part of the problem. You may not, it may not be the lover that's driving you crazy. You may be the one driving your lover crazy and you're getting crazy because of it. It's not always perceived as the lover's driving you crazy as much as maybe your own uncertainties are driving the relationship to the wrong place. So it's, it's always an enormous emotional, practical balancing act to have a relationship that can survive the ups, the downs, and all the interrelated movement, other people's influences and events can't be controlled so somehow you have to manage them and if you can do that you might have a really really lucky partnership with somebody and when you find that you should hang on to it because it's really hard to get I've been lucky enough to find that more than once in my life but it's also often been disrupted for one reason or another so I'm still lucky enough to have it now with Marlene who I met when Jamie was still a very active part of our main man exercise and she was active in that too so it's all at the moment Marlene's my almost 40 year perfect partner Tony DeFries with his memories of main man's Jamie Andrews there are some great pieces of memorabilia from Jamie's era that are part of the archive of Main Man documents, including photographs, articles, telexes, letters and production notes. A lot of them never seen before that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, you'll hear from another Main Man legend who unfortunately also died way too early. He was a very important player in Bowie's musical evolution. That's Trevor Boulder. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.